0: Hello, friends, and welcome to The Interesting Hour. I am your host, Justin Kupanoff, and with me, as always, is...
1: Devesh Verma, and this episode of The Interesting Hour is brought to you by CORE Foundation. CORE Foundation is a multimedia nonprofit. Check us out at cor-foundation.org. Like us, share us, do stuff, because this show relies on you. And only you, <laughs> you, the viewers, <laughs> listeners. Oh, oh, yeah. Not yet. Actually, we'll get viewers soon. Like, don't worry. Uh, not to, not to get like too
0: excited about later seasons, but videos coming one day. Yeah, someday. Sneak peeks. Sneak peeks. So today, guys, uh, we're doing a little something a little bit different. Uh, we haven't done an episode on spirituality yet. Yes, we have not. I mean, no, we have not. <laughs> <laughs> so. Today, uh, we are delving into Buddhism. Yes. Specifically, Sun Buddhism. Correct. Um, and we have an amazing guest, Hwansan Sunim, who joined us. And this is our actually our farthest uh, distance-wise guest that we've had on the show. He's coming in from South Korea.
1: Yeah. It, this is also the most expensive episode The Interesting Hour has ever produced. Uh, <laughs> the phone bill was amazing afterwards. So In um, a good way. A great way. No, it's completely worth it. I actually really enjoyed this episode as our listeners will soon find out um, because we've never done an episode like this before. Um, and I'm just fascinated to see how people like worship and like what they believe in and like what makes the world move. Because yeah. it's, it's filled with so many different types of cultures and everything like that, that it, it was as cool to just be in a laid back atmosphere to talk to somebody about this. Mm-hmm. And I learned a lot. Yeah, I learned a lot,
0: and that's that's the thing. Whether you believe in this stuff or not, uh, there's no denying that that Buddha is like one of the most uh, influential religious figures in history. Yeah, I think I looked it up. It's about I think 488 million people on
2: Earth Thank practice you. Buddhism.
1: Thank you, Google. Thank you, Google. <laughs>
0: um, so enough
1: of us chatting about this. Uh, people listen to this, enjoy it. Uh, we certainly did, and yeah, we'll talk after you hear it. Woo-hoo. One, two, three, four. This is a this is a nice recording we're doing right now. Late late, late night in California, <laughs> latest one we've recorded. Yeah, latest <laughs> night we've ever recorded, but not for our guest today. Our guest is coming from South Korea. Yeah, uh, and uh, if you don't mind introducing yourself to our listeners.
3: Hello, my name is Quan San Sinim, and I am a Korean Buddhist monk. And I am talking to you from Korea in my monastery.
1: Thank you so much for arranging this. Uh, I think it's around uh, uh, late e- or early evening for you over there, correct?
3: Yeah, it's a uh, late afternoon.
1: Oh, late afternoon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's just, mm-hmm. it's pitch black over here. Yeah, we're at, <laughs> mid, we're at midnight here. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, this yeah. Is, I, I love uh, how technologies can bring us all together and get this conversation going. So uh, thank you again. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're you're a Buddhist monk. Yes, I am. Uh, this mm-hmm. is the first time we're doing an episode like this uh, where we're touching on uh, spirituality, um, and it, it's it, there's a lot to go over, and I'm sure we're going to get lost in a lot of uh, different mini topics along the way. But
0: yeah, uh, well let's 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 mm-hmm. start off with the with the the name itself uh, because. Uh, your name is uh, San Sunim, but Sunim is actually, it's more of a title, am I correct?
3: Uh, yeah, that's correct. Uh, Sunim is the uh, Korean term for Buddhist monk. It's, uh, it's kind of a, a very polite term. And so in Korea, when you speak to a, a Buddhist monastic like myself, usually you don't, you don't address them by name. You just simply call them Sunim. And that's kind of like calling a a Catholic priest, father. It's it's a convention and it's it's a simple point of etiquette. But my Buddhist name is Quan okay, and I am a Sunita, a Buddhist monk.
0: Awesome, beautiful, and uh, I guess just getting into it. And in you and your pastor were, were you were mm-hmm. you raised as as a Buddhist, or was this something that you found later in life, or how did that come about?
3: Uh, actually, both of my parents are Buddhist, uh, and. Uh, but I was not raised in a religious way. I actually took an interest in it on my own because, at a very young age, actually I was I was probably nine or ten, and I just started having uh, you know questions about life, about the meaning of life, and you know the purpose of life, and things like that. So I I was drawn to it on my own, um, and became pretty fascinated with it as I as I went into my teen years. So that's that's sort of where it started, I suppose.
0: Okay. And what 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 drew you to it? Other than obviously, you know, I'm sure you got a little bit from your parents, but what uh-huh. what drew you specifically to it, and what was attractive yeah, what was about the, it? What was the lore?
3: I, yeah, I think I think uh, I should be clear on this point. I, I I was not drawn
0: to religious organizations.
3: Like many modern people, I I you know I I I'm not attracted to religious ceremony and dogma and things like that. Uh, more than anything else, I think it was the, the message of Buddhism that, that I was picking up at a very young age. Uh, as a teenager, I was, uh, you know, very interested actually in science. But what science was telling me is that, you know, human beings are just flesh and blood, just atoms and molecules. We're extremely limited beings, uh, you know, who can't survive in the wild on our own. And, and you know, with our senses and our brains, we only have a very limited understanding of, you know, of our environment, of ourselves and so forth. And so this seemed to me at that age, are, you know, a kind of um, sad portrayal of human capability. And what was, I think, profoundly attractive to me about the Buddhist teachings was that uh, that the Buddha apparently taught that the the source of all true knowledge of, of truth itself of anything that's real or sacred in the world is within us, within each individual human being, and so there's a it it, it seems to me the opposite message of what I was picking up you know, in my, in my school, in my school classes, especially in science, that we have actually unlimited capability, that, that, you know, that we have a a powerful ability to perceive and to know uh, both ourselves and and the nature of, of the reality that surrounds us. So this, this was the, I think the really the strong message that sort of touched me and, and and drew
1: me in. You know that's fascinating because you have a science background, and actually, just even googling your name, you come up. You, you're very active; like you do a lot of outreach with this. And <laughs> yes,
3: uh, and yes, I've been a bit noisy. Yeah,
1: that's that's it's great <laughs> because one thing I found was a, a, an article you had, and we'll touch on this a little later uh, in more detail. But mm-hmm. what I thought was fascinating was you is titled "A Quantum Theory of Consciousness," and you, you still. you It was very well written. First of all, I had to read it like three times. But it like, and uh, <laughs> but you, you still have that scientific background, uh, even with how you're uh, practicing Buddhism. And so it seems
2: well, to me. Least,
3: I, I was. Yeah, I, I am. I am culturally American. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was born and raised in in uh, New York. My my parents are immigrants from Korea. Who you know, who came over to the United States. For college and met each other, you know, in the U.S. So I, I was I was raised American, uh, uh, you know, and my first language is English, and so you know uh, that side of science of of being logical, of asking for proof, you know, of of relying on direct empirical observation rather than accepted belief or dogma and things like that, or using. Uh, religious texts as authority—that—that that has always been something that that I've accepted. That I think is 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 very honest. It's a very honest approach
2: mm-hmm. to
3: trying to understand life. Mm-hmm. So, and and I really found no conflict between that and Buddhism. And and when we get into talking about meditation, uh, we'll see that meditation, in a sense, is also a form of observation, a form of of looking. Mm-hmm. In this, you know, it's just it's just a this different method, I suppose. So I, I have never found any conflict between, you know, this early interest that I had in science and then my eventual uh, commitment to Buddhist teachings and practices. And and I, and I very much enjoy returning to, uh, you know, science, the latest scientific developments, uh, because the more time passes, the more, there you know, the, the less conflict there seems to be between the two points of view. And that, of course, is something we can continue to talk about uh, you know, if, if that's your, what you're interested in. I,
1: oh, absolutely. Um, I think you know, b- before we you know. even dive this, because that's, we, we need to f- first set the foundation here, right? Let's start basic, all right? Can you, like, can you give us a little history of Buddhism and, like, what is it?
3: <laughs> oh, okay, so the, uh, okay. <laughs> Buddhism is, is uh, you know, the, the English name for the religion the uh, founded by the individual we now call the Buddha. The Buddha was... Uh, tradition tells us the Buddha was actually an Indian prince uh, who was born about roughly 500 BC in a in a very tiny country that no longer exists. Uh, legend tells us that the name of the country was Kapilavastu, mm. and uh, according to the story, when when he was born, uh, under you know his father, the king, a a holy man, a kind of seer, uh, you know prophesied that this young prince whose name was Siddhartha Gautama would grow up and choose one of two destinies. Uh, the first was that he would, be, he would become king. He would unite the Indian continent without violence and then initiate a peaceful reign of, that would go a thousand years.
2: Hmm.
3: Or the second destiny was he would, uh, he would renounce The world, the secular world, take up the spiritual path, become enlightened, and then uh, forever open the path to spiritual liberation for all, you know, for all who follow. So uh, his father, having heard this prophecy, uh, arranged for his son never to see any human suffering. So he, he grew up in extremely luxurious surroundings, surrounded by beautiful friends and playmates, and he never saw anyone who was sick or injured. He never saw any elderly people, and he just lived in this kind of bubble
2: mm-hmm.
3: uh, until you know until you know he was almost an adult and then, like uh you know as, as teenagers you know tend to do, he became very curious about the world outside so he he snuck outside on three successive visits, and when he went outside, he saw you know. A different reality. He saw poverty for the first time. He saw, you know, you know, suffering, and and um, the the way the legend tells it is the first thing he saw was a, an extremely elderly person who was, you know, almost lame and blind. And he was had never seen that before. and He was terrified, and he asked his his charioteer, you know, what is that? And mm. you know, that's an old person. And so then he asked, wow. well will I become old too?" Mm -hmm. and the charioteer answers yes you will and then on the on the second visit he sees like a leper a very very seriously sick person and again he asks will i become sick as well again he hears the answer is yes in spite of the fact that he's a young you know wealthy powerful prince
2: Mm -hmm.
3: in the third visit he sees a corpse and he learns of the reality of death and he learns that he too will die and this throws him into a kind of despair. And then he makes one final visit. You know, at this point his you know his bubble has burst, and he goes outside and he sees a wandering ascetic, uh, which is a tradition in India at the time of people who renounce society and and you know live by alms begging and practice meditation, looking for spiritual liberation. And he saw. This this uh, ascetic and who was you know kind of radiant and seemed to be filled with a you know a mysterious kind of peace, which she now envied. and so he asks his charioteer, "Who's that?" And they tell him, "Well, that's a samana, a seeker of truth." Mm-hmm. And then he that inspires him, and so he leaves home. Uh, you know, even though by then he had become married and had a had a baby, uh, he leaves he leaves the palace. Enters the forest, takes off his princely garments, and becomes a a uh, a wandering truth seeker. And for the next six years, you know, it was it's a long story. But for the next six years, he he tries a variety of practices until finally he finds his own path, which he later called the middle way. Uh, And under the the famous Bodhi tree, he sits for one you know one final time in meditation and after 7 days of of meditation he's finally awakened and that's what the name the word buddha means the awakened one the enlightened one hmm. and and he begins his his uh you know his career as a spiritual teacher and in his own lifetime uh, the religion that we now call buddhism that he created in india became actually the largest uh and most influential uh, religious sect uh, in that time, and then later, of course, it continued to spread outside of India. But and so, that, that, in a nutshell, is the story of the Buddha.
0: That's awesome, and so, and is that you said that happened in his lifetime? So, this it seems like it all happened pretty quick. If it was something that, like, well, he
3: he's uh, he achieved uh, uh, enlightenment at age thirty five, and then for you know until he passed, yeah, uh, you know, the the, the phrases he passed into Nirvana, he passed away at age 80. So he was teaching for nearly 50 years and and he taught all over the Indian subcontinent and you know he was uh you know he 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 was uh you know one of the most you know inspirational uh you know religious leaders in world history. So yeah, he he managed to move and you know, very very many people in his lifetime.
1: I just had a follow-up question about his history uh you were mentioning that six years before he found, uh, he gained the title but, of Buddha. Yes. It was that at the time. This is just my own understanding. I want to know: uh, was that when he was living in extreme poverty, where he was fi- trying to find that lifestyle before he found the middle way, or how? Well, he-
3: uh, so he uh, when he embarked on his quest as as a seeker, as a mm-hmm. samana, mm-hmm. the first thing he did was he he studied under uh uh the these uh spiritual teachers who were considered the most you know they were the most highly respected and venerated mm-hmm. and uh he actually uh you know he actually exceeded them i mean they they acknowledged that he had exceeded their their spiritual attainment but the buddha himself was not satisfied he really felt that he had not transcended human suffering and ignorance completely mm-hmm. and so then he embarked on uh six years of self-practice where he actually performed um, austerities, which are um, self-mortification practices, like, you know, not drinking water, fasting, not sleeping. Uh, you know, by today's standards, they, you know, most people would not find them attractive, but <laughs> at that time, in that, yeah, in that time, in that culture, uh, it, you know, people, believed there was an idea that at the extreme end of suffering you could find release from it that you could tr- transcend it if you could go to the very end of it so he tried that for six years and famously at the end of it he concluded that suffering brings no no revelation and uh, so he famously broke his fast and accepted um, this uh, this kind of rice porridge from uh, you know this this you know village maiden who was near the river where he where he meditated, and then he 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 discovered for himself what I mentioned earlier the middle path. Mm-hmm. The middle path simply means that the the true meaning of life will not be found at, at the at one extreme of extreme self denial, and you know self rejection, nor will it be. Ex- nor will it be discovered at the other extreme of, you know, self-indulgence. Of where he came you know, from, basically,
0: how he started his life.
3: Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, that there would be this, you know, that there was a central path to truth that would, that, but those extremes, pleasure-seeking or some kind of self-abusive, <laughs> you know, self-denying, that neither one of those will really get you anywhere. this This is actually... For Buddhists, a very uh, famous and sort of foundational teaching—the so-called Middle Path.
1: Well, I, it it became popular because, as you said already, it spread outside and it went around to other areas. Um, personally, I've traveled uh, mm-hmm. with my wife to Cambodia, and it we toured uh, and like explored some of the ruins. And you know, especially in Cambodia, like you see a lot of conflicting ideologies, or I should say, conflicting, but. Just based off who was ruling at the time, you see like going back and forth between Buddhism and Hinduism. And it's just like it was a constant, like, but yeah, like, where can we find Buddhism in the world? Like, where is it popular? Like, like, if someone wants to go to a country?
3: Well, uh, until the 19th century, probably Buddhism was mostly restricted to, you know, continental Asia. So, Northeast Asia, China, Japan, Korea, mm-hmm. uh, South Asia, India, obviously, Sri Lanka, Thailand. Uh, Burma um, and then uh, Central Asia, what is now Afghanistan and so forth. But then in the 19th century, as, as the Europeans began you know, traveling around the world and they made contact, uh, you know, they became interested in this, and, and you know through modernization, Buddhism has spread all. So really now you can find uh, probably a Buddhist temple in any country. Uh, I'm actually surprised by, you know, I, I have been contacted by people in, you know, Latin America. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know that uh, they, there's an interest in Africa. And, and amazingly, I actually once got a message from someone in Saudi Arabia who told me wow. that he was having trouble finding a Buddhist meditation. Wow. I, yeah, that was amazing to me. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> now it's really, it's global. But, but you know, for the bulk of its history, it has been mainly in Asian you know, an ancient tradition. And now it's, it's it's traveling around the world, and it's sort of mutating as it interacts with you know different cultures and and also modernity itself. So, so this is a very interesting time.
0: Yeah, yeah, in the and history of Buddhism. And that's that's one thing I wanted to talk about too, because you said, as you said, it's like it's mutating, and I think in many different places it's taken on a life of its own. So, like, how many like do you know how many sects of Buddhism there are? Can you call them sects? I think you can.
3: Uh yeah I I guess we you know uh, that that would be fair to say schools of Buddhism back branches I I would imagine that there are just as many you know variations of Buddhism as there are variations of any other um, sort of global religious tradition like um, Christianity or Islam mm-hmm. so you know within each country there will be various sects you know within each country that that harbors Buddhism there will be many different sects so really there are I, I probably couldn't name all of them. There are so many.
0: Oh yeah, you know, over, I mean it's the
3: same thing with Christianity. A, There's so many. Two thousand
0: five hundred year history. So. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, uh, why don't we just get into right into that then, uh, since we're talking about it, and because you are doing uh, you practicing mm-hmm. Sun Buddhism.
3: Okay, so Sun Sun is uh, uh, in in Japanese. It's called Zen. So, Sun is really the the Korean version of Zen Buddhism, which I think is more familiar to to people out in the United States. Uh, in China, it's called uh, it's it's the same Chinese character, just pronounced differently. So, in China, it's called Chan. Korea, it's called Sun. Japan, it's called Zen. And and it basically means meditation. This is the meditation school of Buddhism. And what that means, especially within Sun or Zen Buddhism. Is that uh, there in meditation? There is an attempt to to find real understanding, what we would call enlightenment, a, a true perception of reality, and of our own existence within our own lived experience. So, literally within the tradition, there is a sort of a, an aphorism that says, uh, "Throw away all teachings and enter into sun, and enter into meditation. But don't use uh, the." The mediation of language, of mental representations, of, of metaphors and conceptions and ideas and theories and words. Put that all aside, and and let's try to experience so-called truth directly. And and what makes that I think this is what makes Han Buddhism, uh you know, distinctive. This is its identifying feature, and and the uh, the teaching is extremely optimistic. Uh, Traditionally, in earlier forms of Buddhism, it was believed that you had to practice for many lifetimes, building up a lot of positive karma and so forth, in order to become enlightened, in order to awaken and see the nature of your own life. But uh, according to Sang Buddhism, anybody, regardless of whether they're a monk or not a monk, uh, even if you've done, you know, uh, bad things, even if you've behaved in unethical ways, harmed others or harmed yourself, insofar as you can turn around and, you know, diligently commit to this practice, we can, anybody can get awakened. And one of the, um, one of the, you know, sort of the really striking, um, I guess, teachings is that they, they say that the phrase goes that even a butcher... Holding down the neck of a pig with the knife in his hand raised to strike, can in that moment of, of murderous intent, even in that moment, if he can turn his mind around, he can get enlightened. So, this uh, really unbound optimism and sense of hope for people, are, I found personally very, very attractive and inspiring. But I think that that's that's sort of the the key message of of Sun Buddhism is that anyone they make up their mind to it, can transform themselves, become enlightened. so I think that that would be in a nutshell sort of the 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 main teaching and and sort of path that Sun Buddhism tries to take us on
1: that's a that's incredible. <laughs> that was, yeah, that's, of course. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm like, listen, I'm like, I... no, 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 I, I, yeah, you answered that uh, so thoroughly because I'm like, I, obviously this is an audio only podcast and I'm just like, no one can see me. It's like, I'm like sitting here, arms crossed, hands on my chin, like, yes, <laughs> I see. Uh-huh. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, <laughs> like, okay. Well, uh, thank
3: you. Uh, you you guys are, you know, you're Wonderful for people to talk with. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> you're so receptive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: uh, <laughs> we're we're here to learn. Um, so, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, me too. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, right. I guess so. Um, so, why would like Buddhism overall? Why would it clash with so many other, so many other ideologies? Like, uh, I don't know, if so many other, but any other ideologies. Like I was saying earlier, when I
3: was in Cambodia. Oh, why would it conflict? Are you asking me if it will conflict? Yeah, correct. Oh, uh, actually, uh, no, I don't think there's conflict. The Buddha in his own lifetime famously taught that there are many paths to truth. And this is not just a Buddhist thing. This is, I think, uh, sort of a, a, a characteristic of this really incredibly rich, Uh, religious culture that that India has produced over you know so many centuries Mm. so it it wasn't just the Buddha this was sort of the standard protocol I think so so he 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 also was extremely uh, you know open and and tolerant and and I think I think one of the uh, one of the things that may sort of clarify this is that at the time in India uh, there was a caste system extremely rigid you know you know, what we would now call authoritarian uh, mm. social system with the so-called untouchables at the bottom who were, you know, what we, w- we would say they're very marginalized, very disempowered and oppressed. Mm-hmm. Above them, not so far above them, would be uh, farmers, and merchants, and craftsmen, uh, people like that. And then above them was the warrior class, which is actually the caste that the Buddha originally belonged to. And then above that were the, uh, the Vedic priests, the so-called Brahmins, Mm-hmm. and it was believed at that time that all power in the universe the power to you know protect the nation protect ourselves from natural calamities to have a good crop to have healthy sons and daughters all of that all of that power was was uh, owned by the gods and mm-hmm. only the priests through religious ceremony could access that power so they literally had a monopoly on on what was the most relevant um uh, sort of uh, thing in in their culture and society, and then not only the Buddha, but in in these other religious leaders came out and began to challenge that, and that's one one of the things that the Buddha did. He said that anyone of any caste could, you know, practice this and gain liberation from suffering. Uh, it's believed that he founded the first. Uh, religious institution for women, run by women, the female monastic tradition, the so-called Pikuni order. Hmm. So, um, but uh, so they were very open, and uh, they were also open to other traditions. So the tendency for Buddhism when it transplants into another nation is that it, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't like beat the other religion. It tends to to absorb them. So if you if you look at the iconography, uh, you will see that the the Buddhist you know, the images of the Buddha, the images of the so-called bodhisattvas, who are, are, who are Buddhist figures as well, they're, they're sort of transcendent figures. Can, can you say they're that name again? they similar to Hindu gods and goddesses. Can you say that name oh, again? bodhisattva. Okay. Yeah, bodhisattva. Okay. A bodhisattva is a, sort of a cosmic being similar to a deity who is, you know, close to the Buddhist level of attainment. And so, but they are actually, um, if you look at them, they very much resemble Hindu gods and goddesses. And that's because uh, the Buddha, the Buddhist tradition didn't attempt to um, uh, eradicate, you know, other religious beliefs. They simply just pull them into their own, you know, into their own cosmology and into their own iconography. So, in every nation, the images of the Buddha ethnically look like the people who live there. So, in Korea, the Buddha looks like a Korean person. In China, the Buddha looks, like, looks Chinese. And in, in the images of the Buddha, you see him wearing Chinese robes, even though the Buddha was clearly Indian. <laughs> in India, obviously, the, there is an interesting place in, in northern India where uh, a, a migrant group of Greek travelers settled down and they became Buddhist. So if you go there and look wow. at the uh, statues of the Buddha, you will see European Greek Buddhas with mustaches. It's really, uh, it's really very wow. interesting. So there, there's a tendency to just kind of, um, you know, the, the metaphor is that all, you know, all rivers, clean or not clean, you know, fresh water or salty, when they join the ocean, they all become one, you know, salty ocean water. And in the same way, that's been the Buddhist approach that it, rather than fight and win, just absorb and harmonize. So uh, strictly speaking, there really is no conflict, at least on the Buddhist end. And it would, be a, um, it would actually be a violation of Buddhist teachings to go out and say, you know, only Buddhism is true. And, you know, if you believe in some other religion, you know, something really bad is going to happen to you. That, mm. you know, I don't think any Buddhist leader has ever taught that uh, or would even be allowed to teach that.
0: I think this is why everybody gets along so well with Buddhists. It's like, hey, dude, whatever you want, man, your own path. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. there has uh, there's
3: never been a Buddhist war. There's never been a war yep. waged to spread Buddhism. Or so, yeah. So that's yeah. To be honest, that's that's actually a part of Buddhist history that I'm personally you know proud of. That I, yeah. that, I think that that's wonderful. Absolutely. Yeah, that's something that 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 can be shared. Yeah.
1: Well. Let me segue that into sun meditation, actually, if you don't mind, because I was, okay. even on, on the YouTube channel, I was, you were actually quoted saying it aims to eradicate the very roots of inner suffering, as well as awaken us uh, mm-hmm. to our infinite human potential. Uh, mm-hmm. what, what, what is an envision, like, what is that infinite human potential? Well, what do you envision that? What's that goal like?
3: Well, uh, sun meditation, I've been trying to think of a, of a way to describe this that would, that would, uh, you know, that would be accessible, I think, to people who are encountering this for the first time. I think the best way to, to describe this is to think of sun meditation as a way of regulating your body, your breathing, and your, uh, mental focus. In such a way as to, to fully actualize, you know, your potential that leads to personal growth, personal development, eventually self transformation, mm-hmm. meaning that you, you really change a lot as a person. And finally, according to the tradition, culminating in, in enlightenment. So the, the important thing to understand here is that, that people have a, um, sort of a stereotypical image of meditation as something you do away from day-to-day life, like you go to a mountain, or a monastery, or a meditation center, or you go into mm-hmm. a forest. And, that, and, and so it's like it's something that you do in a special time and place, mm-hmm. and that you actually have to leave your daily life for. And that's actually, uh, from the sun meditation point of view, that's not a very good, it's a very strong misconception. Uh, I would rather characterize sun meditation as actually a way of living. In moment to moment life, that in this moment, if somebody really upsets you, you know, they're rude to you or, or whatever, there's some kind of conflict, and you really get hurt or really get angry or really get afraid or depressed, uh, this is a protocol, an actual concrete, you know, real time protocol to follow to alleviate that distress as quickly as possible. In that moment, you actually adjust your posture, your breathing, the way that you're focusing your mind. You know, you draw it away from troubling thoughts. And so it's kind of like, um, it's really a way of living. And, and yes, you do need to set aside time to, to perform sitting meditation. But, you know, it's the same thing as uh, the way, say, a professional football player would, would uh, work out in the gym. They, why do they work out in the gym? So they can play better on the field. Yeah. So in the same way, we sit in meditation to learn very subtle levels of control over our own mind-body complex so that when we go out in life, we can behave the way we want to. We can recover quickly from emotional distress and we can fully utilize our, you know, our various mental and physical gifts and so forth and, and even on an ethical level to be the kind of person that we want to be. And, and that's what I mean by self-actualization. From the Buddhist point of view, a lot of people in modern society look at that as their goal, but from the Buddhist point of view, that's really just the beginning. And then as you go deeper and deeper, we begin to tap into deeper levels of consciousness, uh, you know, ways of feeling and perceiving that literally were unimaginable before. Um, and then, and then finally, if you go all the way to the end, then you know, you would you would get enlightened. The the teaching tells us, but that would be the path of meditation. You begin with a sim as a simple, effective protocol for dealing with distress, then self enhancement, growth, development, self transformation, awakening. It's a path of life. It's
1: it's so, so fascinating. I, a... I,
3: I hope that's clear. No,
1: absolutely. <laughs> I, I, I it's you, it's so uh-huh. clear. I'm actually getting reminded of another episode of ours where we did uh, uh, hypnosis, actually. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And they're and we talking about self-hypnosis and actually altering your state. Or this seems like there's some overlap uh-huh. with that with meditation and, and how you're explaining it. Uh, I don't know. I just I, that whole episode screamed right back in my head right now as you're talking. I so, oh,
2: I see.
3: So, um, no, absolutely.
1: I think that was a great explanation. Well,
3: yeah, hypnosis is, uh, hypnosis is kind of like it, it's not what people think. You're not unconscious and you're right, not right, right. You're not docile. It's not like someone can tell you that you open up a window and you know step out. <laughs> uh, you're, you're fully awake in hypnosis, but it's, it's different. It's like you change the channel.
1: Yeah, exactly. right.
3: And so that gives you an, I- that gives you an idea of how uh, fluid our waking consciousness is. It's not like just two settings: awake or asleep. The way we are when we're reading or watching a movie or playing or working, and the way we are when we're dysfunctional, when we're upset and, inner, and conflicted with ourselves, these are all variations of consciousness. The consciousness has more textures, uh, more, uh, more forms than we realize. And we, we move between them without realizing because we're not trained in self-observation. We're simply not aware that, that we're actually, you know, every day is this incredible journey through different states of consciousness, different emotional states, different mm-hmm. mindsets, But we're never trained in school or in our workplace to be that self-aware. Right. So this is something that I feel actually should be, you know, regardless of your religious background, you know, we should, when we're born, we're not given an owner's manual for our own mind and body. Mm -hmm. But this, I feel, is what that is. These kinds of ancient uh, mind cultivation, mind-body cultivation teachings, that's basically what it is. It's like what to do with the human body and mind
0: and is it is it um,
3: you know to get the most out of life
1: right
0: right Excuse and me? is it when you when you when you're doing meditation to try to you know maybe Adjust the channel setting on your brain, like so. So later in the day, when that guy like cuts you off in traffic, that instead of you know going to right, that right. one part of your mind that yeah. you know the reptilian part, yeah, exactly, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It, so is is that am Almost I getting like that right? the reptiles.
1: <laughs> yeah. I know. I don't mean that. I mean like you know we get man. If we're know, in, we're I I in Los exactly Angeles, my, when you. Yeah. It yeah, sucks when you're in traffic. I'm
2: aware of
3: the uh, the urban environment that you're in. I'm from New York. You yeah, know, you know, exactly, me. exactly, yeah. <laughs> man. So, um, uh, no, I, I I do know what you mean, and and that's yeah, that's it's like uh, it's training. It's. Imagine a tennis player when you're first learning. I, I actually don't play tennis, but I do know how they learn. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, but uh, when you first when you first practice, you don't even use a ball. You just you're just practicing the swing over and over because it's it's not you know your your body's not used to moving that way. Mm. Then they have a a machine that throws balls at you, and then you play with your instructor who lobs it at you so it's easy to return. And then only at the very end, when it's really been really deeply programmed into your nervous system, into your, into your muscular system so that you can react without thinking. Only then can you really play. And then you're just moving fluidly uh, because you're not thinking about the movement. In the same way, meditation is very similar. When you're sitting, it's a lot like playing, you know, learn the first lessons of tennis. Basic control of breathing, basic knowledge of how to relax and balance your body basic, uh, you know, training and stabilizing your line of attention so that you can keep it on one object and not be so distracted by every kind of stimulus around you. Mm
2: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
3: And then as you get better, you can maintain that state in doing simple things like, you know, cleaning your room or doing your laundry. And as you get better and better, just as that tennis player can play in, you know, much more confusing, more competitive situations. You keep going up, you know, up the level so that you can bring it into your workplace and use it in your workplace. You can, and finally, I actually, I actually do drive. And because I teach so much in Korea, I, uh, um, you know, I have to go through a lot of urban traffic and it's, it's, I, I would imagine it's comparable to what you face in LA. Oh man! And I'm <laughs> so, you put to the I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> yeah, so, but I actually do meditate when I drive. It's actually possible. It's just a matter of step-by-step training. And, and so I am, you know, you know, I, I, uh, it's it's a more pleasant experience even when I get <laughs> cut off or you know, so <laughs> forth. So it's it, it's doable, but it's you know it's skill acquisition. We need to practice, just like everything else in life. You know, there's there's no need to mystify it. You know, right? So, but yeah, but I think yeah, LA. I think certainly some meditation could do a lot of <laughs> there.
1: You know, the way you're explaining <laughs> it, I feel like this would benefit a lot of people, not just in yeah, Los Angeles, definitely, because. Uh, yeah, no one ever thinks I, I not a lot of people think this way. At least I, the ones I've run into, you know?
3: So I I, I actually go to uh uh the United States because my my family lives in Cal in Northern California, so it's it's quite quite a bit of ways from where you are. <laughs> but I teach um I teach veterans uh how to meditate because they have PTSD oh, wow. and, and they're they're Yeah. And so and and this has really been one of the most rewarding experiences that I've had in teaching this is that they have come and told me that they were. I I also taught police officers who were traumatized by, you know, these awful things they had to witness and sometimes they have to do awful things. And they told me, you know, the actually the chief of a police station told me, he said to me that, you know, that he had been he was a veteran of the Gulf Wars. And then he was a, a career police officer for like 20 or 30 years. He was retired at that time. He said that he and his fellow officers and his fellow veterans carry these hideous memories that they absolutely cannot share with anyone around them. They, mm. there's, you know, they cannot let other people know what they have seen and what they have done. And mm. it's just this toxic, festering you know, wound in their soul.
1: That's terrible.
3: And, uh, you know, he told me that when he learned the meditation, it was the first time that he had ever experienced any kind of relief from it. And I, I actually never knew that this is a, you know, this is a religious-based meditation tradition. So I actually never knew that it, it had such powerful therapeutic effects. And when he told me that, that was actually one of the, the most gratifying moments uh, in, you know, in, in the various kinds of uh, teaching situations that I've been in. So, yeah, I, I I very much believe that it can be used in all sorts of settings.
0: Oh, that's that's amazing. That's great. I, I that was one of the things I wanted to ask about too since we're since we're getting on to it. Um so not only with, mm-hmm. with these guys, just what, what are some of the other benefits and just uh, in you know, not even in these extreme cases, but maybe even in simpler stuff. Like what are the what are the benefits that you see from meditation itself?
3: Well as I said, it begins with uh you know simple relief from stress symptoms and and you know things like that but as you um, as you meditate more and more in your daily life uh, and what happens is that your um, let's say your basic mindset your sort of you know your the the level that you're normally at in day to day life you feel an unburdening you you know, the, the, negative, the negativity starts to dissolve. And so you find yourself smiling for no reason. Someone, you know, treats you poorly, is inappropriate with you or is rude with you. And your instant reflex is not anger or, or distaste or even judgment. You begin to actually feel compassion. You know, you begin to, see, you can see very clearly, oh, you know, they're not really reacting to me. They're reacting to some, thing in their head or in their past that's hurting them and causing them to lose control of their behavior. This isn't philosophical. If it were philosophical or intellectual, you don't have time to react because our emotions are so volatile. They they're so instant. You know, by the time you're trying to tell yourself to be nice, you're already angry. Mm. So this this works from the inside out and simply by removing you know, all these issues that we have about ourselves, you know, I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not successful enough. I'm not whatever enough. And, and all these expectations that we have of other people, I wish people were nicer, you know, less violent and so forth that these, um, these kinds of, uh, they're really mental habits of thinking they dissolve and then we can see things for what they are. And, and, and we can, you know, there's a, we're not asking anything or anyone or even ourselves to be anything but what we already are, and we're simply responding to that. And so we are participating finally in reality, not with all you know the, the show in our head, our expectations, our disappointments, and so forth. So this leads us to a higher level of clarity, and it actually does transform your social relationships. And then you go in deeper and... You begin to realize um, that you you begin to it's, it, this is difficult to describe. But you have a very subtle experience of of life itself. That that um, you know day to day day to day moment to moment living becomes more luminous, uh, lighter, but also somehow more centered, more stable. There's extreme clarity, and then you know it's it's a, it's a long journey that meditation takes us on through, you know, um, really, uh, things that we really cannot imagine experiences that we cannot imagine until we, until we actually encounter them. And I believe that this is our, 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 uh, our legacy as human beings. This is, this is, you know, we were born to be able to do this, you know, like just the way that a boor, a bird is born to spread its wings mm. and, and fly. Mm. So, uh, but that is, that is the path, and it—you know—it's something that I'm very happy to share these teachings with other people, and and I think it's it's very helpful.
1: <laughs> Not to underplay everything you just said, but that was absolutely deep. Like you just yeah, got yeah. super deep about
0: that. <laughs> I was like, wow. Okay.
1: Yeah. <laughs> like,
0: oh, thank you. <laughs> uh, so, um, so when you're. Uh, when you get down to the actual process, I, I know you say uh, you can take uh, the meditative state and you can, you know, use that throughout the day, even when you're, you know, driving around, like you said. But mm-hmm. when, when you're sitting, uh, either with yourself or, or with a, a group, like what, what's the process? What are you supposed to be doing in your head? What is that thought <laughs> process supposed to be, or is it oh, just supposed that, to be that, like a blank slate? No, that's, uh, a, that's actually a, a great
3: question. This a, it's uh, so the nuts and bolts of it is that you, you can do this in a chair. So you, you, you know, you sit, you know, you sit straight. Uh, If you're in a chair with your feet flat on the ground, uh, flat on the floor, and uh, you really want a straight line from the crown of your head to your tailbone. And then we, we use a form of of breathing called abdominal breathing, which is, uh, you know, you breathe through your nose and when you breathe in, you push out your lower belly as if it's filling with air You pause a little bit, and then you exhale. And uh, when you exhale, in meditation, in sun meditation, you ask yourself a question. And the question is, what is this thing within me that directs my body? What is this thing within me that generates the thoughts that I think? When I feel a physical sensation or experience an emotion, what is it within me that feels those things if I imagine in my mind the face of someone I love, someone I'm close to, and I can see them in my mind, almost like a photograph or, a, or a, a movie image, what's looking at that image and what's creating that image? We're very much looking for who or what we really are, a direct experience of ourselves, not a label like mind or personality or identity or something like that, but to connect with to deep to deeply connect with. So it's almost like the eye trying to see itself. So we breathe in, pause, and as we breathe out, we ask, What is this? Usually we do it in Korean, but for the sake of simplicity today I'm gonna to do it in
2: English. <laughs> I appreciate that.
3: Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. so um and and all you're doing is, the question itself, it's not just a, repeat, a repeating phrase that you just repeat over and over. What you're trying to do is when you ask, what is this? You're trying to direct your gaze at the thing. There's a moment inside of you when you make the decision to think that thought. What is that thing? What is this thing that is asking, what is this? And so you're literally directing your gaze inward toward its own source. And this is what we're, this is the state. It's called the state of doubt. Uh, that's just a Buddhist technical term. It doesn't mean skepticism.
2: Mm-hmm. It
3: just means wanting to know the answer, wanting to be able to perceive this invisible internal perceiver. All of us, I think, experience life like there is something called me inside my body, and I'm wearing my body like a man in an astronaut suit. Right. But if I were to take my body, put it under an MRI machine, I would find nothing but flesh and blood, you know, just cells. No little me, no little man in the suit or mm-hmm. no little driver inside of the robot. So what is this thing? It, it is the most natural question in the world. And, and the Buddhist claim, the Sun Buddhist claim is that it's because we don't know the answer, that we don't fundamentally know who and what we are, that we experience so much confusion in our lives what college should i go to what should i do for a living should i marry this person or not the answers to all of those questions are not out there not in the college brochures or the you know the 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 company mission statement or in the you know catalog of attributes that my you know potential spouse may have the answer to the question to those questions is within myself it's it's a lack of self knowledge that causes so much, you know, it's considered the very root of all inner suffering in Sun Buddhism. And what we're trying to do is literally awaken to who we really are. It it's, you know, it is is self-discovery in the most literal sense of the world.
1: That's amazing because I think uh, so, what, the term I'm thinking about where you're, you're talking about is something, what was it, like ego death? Where you're trying to remove your... Is that am I on the right? Am Excuse I saying, me. Ego death. I, I like. I feel like that's like the term that we're. Oh yeah,
3: that's uh, uh, okay. Like it, so, is, we have every everyone with everyone has a sort of self image
2: mm-hmm. and
3: uh, a kind of uh, self constructed idea of who they are. So I'm a man and not a woman, or I'm a woman and not a man. I am of this ethnicity. I have this kind of education. We have this like big story in our head of who we are, and we're actually constantly editing it. Mm -hmm. right and it's um and that's who we think we are so if we feel like um you know if someone touches my cell phone without my permission yeah i'll react like they touched me physically you know (laughs) even though there's actually no true biological connection between that cell phone and me and the reason for that is because that cell phone has now become a part of my identity it's it's my property right you know it it you know, I chose it for that color and that design, so it's an expression of me, and now someone's put their grubby hands on it. You know, it's upsetting. <laughs> and so from, from the, from the Buddhist <laughs> point of view, the idea is to liberate your, that's, that what we think of and what we cherish as who we are is actually a prison that limits us, that doesn't free us, you know, to be, you know, every, you know everyone we could be in every different situation, and so, uh, but, but the important thing here is that in Buddhist meditation, in this form of meditation, you don't have to like try to reject your self identity mm-hmm. just by practicing this meditation. It simply melts away. And I think that's what, that's what accounts for the feeling of luminosity, this openness and this lightness that we feel as we practice more and more in meditation that you're not trying to live up to someone that you've sort of forced yourself to be, you know? Mm-hmm. You can just react to what's actually happening. You're not constantly measuring yourself according to this this image in your own mind. I believe that that is the modern form of idolatry, that we worship this image that we have in our own mind of who we are.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
3: And so it, it, it draws our attention away from, literally, from life, from what's going on around us. Wow. So meditation does address that simply by... It, when you go in it, it dissolves all of those kind of even unconscious uh mental structures and formations so you're so that's something that has to be experienced yeah
1: yeah it sounds like it. like uh, you are you're, expi- you're ex- explaining earlier like perceiving the self like the who is like watching the memory that you were thinking of in your mind like looking introspectively yeah sure i uh, that's a Good segue into your article, the a quantum theory of consciousness, (laughs) because uh, because Uh uh, what I understood from it is, especially in the very beginning of it, you're talking about where consciousness actually comes from. Does it come from like does it exist before the brain forms? And like there was some fascinating ways of thinking about this topic. Like how do you explain consciousness? Like because some scientists say it's you know your brain functioning. That's how. That's where it comes derives from, but you're actually saying something else. You're presenting a different kind of argument. Do you mind, like, just summarizing that for people? To, I'll put the link for the article. Sure.
3: I, yeah, I'll I'll try to sort of you know really be uh, concise. <laughs> uh, I I think uh, I think what, what I think what mainstream science uh, is currently teaching us is that consciousness is something that's created by the physical structure of the brain. The, the brain is the source of all consciousness. So when the brain dies, so too does consciousness. Uh, And, uh, but there are, there have been other, you know, other ways to explain that relationship between the brain and the consciousness. And one was sort of became popular towards the, uh, you know, the end of the 19th century, and the beginning of 20th century, where they say, well, what if the brain is not the source of the, of consciousness, but actually the receiver in the way that a radio is the, receiver of radio signals from a physically distant radio station. Now, if you, you know, if you uh, damage the radio, that doesn't mean that the radio station is damaged, but you will have problems receiving messages.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Similarly, if you damage the brain, that doesn't necessarily mean that consciousness itself has been somehow damaged, but simply that the connection between the physical mechanism of the brain and whatever you know, consciousness is
2: mm-hmm.
3: that connection has been, you know, has been, uh, you know, has been damaged, and so you'll see, you know, the kinds of uh, clinical symptoms that you see, whether it's memory loss or whatever, uh, when someone gets brain damage. So this is this is an alter- alternate version where it's actually the other way around that the brain is reliant on consciousness to to do what it does. That consciousness is uh, is non physical in nature. Um, this is not a fashionable idea, and it's exactly—I you know, think—probably no mainstream scientist will, uh, you know, will agree with that. But I think people in their daily lives, no one really wants to feel like they're a machine, you know. No one wants to feel like that, you know, that that everything they think and feel is just this kind of secondary effect of the brain just trying to feed itself. It is uh, an and we want to believe. That's not how we, we. No one's entirely comfortable. Something within us suspects that there's more to us than that. Mm-hmm. So, and I think that's what accounts for, uh, you know, the continuing interest in in these ancient traditions, um, even in these times. So, uh, I think that, that's that's. Somebody,
2: probably what, I, what I, yeah,
3: yeah.
1: <laughs> I, I. I would suggest people uh, so check out the I,
0: article as well. It,
1: it's it's yeah. definitely a fascinating read, uh, and again, it was you uh-huh. you wrote it very well, and it's uh, yeah, it, it got my brain turning. Um, I think at this, I think at this point of the episode, I want to kind of just turn this. We actually uh, posted uh, in advance online on our social media channels that uh, we're going to be having this interview with you. And we actually got some responses. And uh, I wanted to go through these questions, uh, especially from uh, Sandy oh, on Facebook. Sure, she has a few sure. questions I want to go through. And they're good questions. And, uh, again, uh, feel free if you want to pass any of these questions. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah. Well, was,
2: yeah,
3: I'll, I'll be honest. If I don't know the answer, I'll, I'll be honest and just tell you I don't know.
1: Sure. Yeah, there's some basic ones here. So, like, uh, she's asking, like, what responsibilities do
3: you have? Uh, what responsibilities do I have yeah. as a Buddhist monastic? Is that the question? Yeah,
2: yeah. Like, well,
3: uh, uh, well, for the last, uh, for most of my life as a Buddhist monk, I, I had, uh, you know, we're, we're all given assignments in the daily maintenance of the monastery, and so I, I had, you know, assignments, and sometimes they were changed, um, but but I was always operating within the confines of of the monastic system. And I actually was, you know, pretty cut off from, uh, you know, from the world at large for, you know, for a very long time. And then about five years ago, uh, my teacher,
2: mm-hmm. uh,
3: who, um, you know, the teacher of our monastic community, who, who we consider to be an enlightened master. His, his name is Sun Master Songdam, mm-hmm. uh He instructed me uh, uh, to, to begin teaching these practices uh, with the world you know, at large. So so about five years ago, I began teaching uh, mostly in Korea. I, I, I taught young Koreans, young professionals, but I also taught, there's a large population of international residents here. So I also taught them. And then th- through my activity, I, I became noticed. And so then I was offered, uh, you know, people came to interview me and, and I actually ended up hosting this uh, this television show. That, that teaches. It's an English language television show that teaches meditation uh, for use in in modern society. Mm. And then after that, I began coming to the United States, and so I've been really teaching. So that's that's been my main duties: is teaching and then my own personal practice of of meditation.
0: Um. Okay. Uh, there's another question here. Uh, what what does it take to to become a monk. What what is that process? Yeah, you're saying you were, you went through. It seems like something Okay, like years. I, I
3: think I understand the questions. So we, uh, when we first enter the monastery, uh, there's sort of a week grace period uh, where you're just. You, first of all, you have to you have to adjust because the, the monastic schedule is really almost the reverse of the modern schedule. We wake up at three a.m. We go to sleep at nine p.m. So you know, the first adjustment is just adjusting your sleep. Wow! And then and then it's it's a very vegetarian diet, and just you know, the, the, your whole life rhythm is being changed. So the first week, uh, you know, you, when you go in, it's 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 such a new environment, and and a lot of people leave in that first week. They go in there and think I, I can't live this way, mm-hmm. and then they they leave. So it's kind of a grace period where you're sort of observed to see if uh, you know if you really if you're really committed to this. And then you enter into a, 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 uh, um, a, a novice period, you know,
2: mm-hmm.
3: where it's called, a, in Korean, it's called a hengja. Uh, the nearest English word would probably be something like postulant. It's like you're, you're an initiate. And that means we usually work in the kitchen doing a lot of manual labor. Mm-hmm. And the, uh, what you're trying to learn here is humbleness. So you're at the, you know, in terms of the social hierarchy, you're at the bottom. So people are telling you what to do Mm -hmm. and, you know, you're, you're running around and it's, it's very busy and, um, and you, you become acclimated to the system and that goes for about a year. And then after a year, you, you know, if you've made it through, uh, then you are given your precepts to become a junior monastic, uh, and then after a couple of years of that, you know, and then you're trained. And then after that, you finally become a full-fledged monastic after about five years. So, uh, and within the, the Korean Buddhist monastic system, there are different ways to be a monk. Like you could become a scholar, you could become a, a ceremony performer, kind of, you do prayers and rituals and you, you have to learn certain specialized forms of chanting. Uh, you could, be, you could, become administrative and be part of the administrative system. But I, I chose to become a meditation monk
2: mm-hmm.
3: and and I stayed within my own monastery, which is unusual because uh, I, I, uh, I wanted to you know, I, I wanted to learn specifically from my teacher.
2: Right.
3: But, um, so, so, you know, if you go to a meditation hall, then basically you'll be spending, you know, almost all of your time meditating. Right, right. <laughs> so there's, but- there's certain flexibility there. Mm-hmm.
0: I'm just I curious. Hope that that yeah, no, no no no, perfectly. Uh yeah. I just had a follow-up question. What what are the ceremonies like or is there is, what's what's the name for a, a Buddhist ceremony?
3: Well, there's uh the most well-known one would be the the early morning uh ceremony which in English would be called the veneration of the Buddha ceremony, mm-hmm. which is called in Korean, year and uh that is performed usually at three thirty AM and it depending on the monastery it could go a little longer or less than half an hour roughly. And uh it's uh you know, it's it's a prayer ceremony and there's there's chanting and uh you know, the purpose is to venerate the you know, the the Buddha and the the Bodhisattvas whom I mentioned before. Uh and also to to remember, to recall what you know, what we've Promised ourselves that we would do the way we would live, the way we would carry ourselves, and then the then the day begins. Then um, often, in, in the case of my monastery, we're also called upon to perform. Uh, I guess the nearest equivalent, the way to say it in English would be sort of memorial services. It's a tradition that when someone passes away, that you have a fun- funeral ceremony, which we also, we, which we also are taught to perform, and. Uh, the funeral ceremony is really a guidance ceremony. You're guiding the spirit of the deceased, hopefully to a favorable rebirth. So even after the funeral for seven weeks, once a week, we perform these memorial services in which the, you know, the spirits can sometimes wander around the spirits of the deceased or they don't, they don't go right away because of emotional attachments to their family or to their past lives. So we perform them once a week, um, And it's really, it's really teaching them. It's really just talking to them, but it is highly, you know, it is highly ritualized, and there's chanting, and so forth. Those, those are the big ones: Mm -hmm. the uh, the veneration of the Buddha, the funereal ceremony, and then these uh, these memorial guidance ceremonies. Um, That there are, you know, many more. But uh, but in my case, because I didn't specialize. In that, uh, because I was taught to be a meditation monk, I really learned the very basic, only the very basic set of them. Hmm. That that probably most Korean Buddhist monks can perform. Wow. So, mm-hmm.
1: Okay. Thank you. That was. Mm-hmm. Have, <laughs> wait, 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 no, no, we're going to use. We're going to do one more uh, question. Because um, this one's actually pretty interesting. I'm not. What? How are the uh, like these temples or monasteries like? How are they? How do they support themselves financially? Like the teachings, because it seems like you oh, donations, donations from yeah, people like, donations
3: from, from, yeah, from the lay people. Yeah. Donations. Yeah. They, they, uh, it's the original term in, in Sanskrit is dana, hmm.
2: Uh,
3: and it's, uh, it's considered, you know, giving, sharing, donating are, you know, that's considered the, the primary ethical, the, the most foundational ethical, uh, uh, principle that that everyone, you know, all human beings ought to know, according to these ancient teachings, not just Buddhist. Mm-hmm. So um, the lay people donate, and we, you know, you know they 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 provide us um, food, shelter, clothing, and so forth. And in return, we share the teachings that that we learn. And so there's this um, you know, harmonious um, symbiotic relationship. Um, between and in, especially in my temple, lay people are practitioners too. They're not just supporters of monks; they they are, they are meditators alongside us. Wow,
0: awesome. Well, I th- I think we're mm-hmm. almost ready to wrap up here. Uh, I got one one final question for you, and then we'll let you uh, mm-hmm. uh, plug the monastery and the classes and everything that you do, and we can let people know how to find you. Mm-hmm. Um, what has been? Okay. Th- what has been the most challenging and the most rewarding part of your of your faith journey so far
3: i would say that it was uh probably trying to learn compassion uh you know that especially as uh you know because i was in a culture that was that was new to me Mm -hmm. i had to keep putting down my own assumptions my own you know, my own preconceptions of what good and bad are, what people ought to be and what they ought not to be. And uh, especially in in those moments, like you say, being caught in traffic and someone cuts you off, you know, Mm -hmm. the the reaction is so instant. Uh, But, you know, but in in practice, you really come up against the side of yourself that you try to hide from others, the side of yourself that you're most ashamed of, that you're worried that if other people knew, you actually think and feel this way, what they might think of you, mm-hmm. but in meditation, this is the greatest challenge. You come right up against that, and and you see that in the way that you judge other people, and so uh, I, you know, I began to really see that. Yeah, I, I you know as a human being, that you know like so many human beings, I actually try to act better than I really am, mm. but I do have a genuine desire to actually be as good as I want to be, and that I think I think that's I think people can relate to that. It's, it's, I think, probably most of us, uh, if not all of us, struggle with that. And that has been um, the greatest challenge, to open my heart, even in the face of what's obviously inappropriate behavior, and see that this, that all bad behavior comes from a place of suffering. And to know that, to feel it the way they do instead of the way that I see it. So, you know, like everyone else, you know, it's, it's a question of human relationships and it's, you know, and magnified large. It is something that we as a species, I think, have to learn, um, you know, especially as, as the, the various nations of the world become closer and closer to one another. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that, definitely. you know, that is my honest answer. It's like, like everyone else, I have always struggled to try to be a better person. Perfect. Um, well, Sunim, uh, how
1: can people find you online?
3: Okay, so if, uh, if anyone is interested in actually uh, learning more about this particular form of meditation, sun meditation, uh, they can come to my YouTube channel by searching my name, Huan San Sinim. Uh, and and the, uh, the videos of the TV program where I teach meditation in its English language, uh, are, there's probably like 100 episodes up there uh, organized according to categories. So, you know, for anxiety, for anger, for depression, so forth so you can you can do that you can also go to the huffington post uh, again online search my name and i've been putting up blog articles for the last few years and so that's available no big deal <laughs> <laughs> that was uh, that was very fortuitous uh, that 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 you know uh, it was <laughs> i'm glad, I, I, I'm glad. I, it was a gift to me <laughs> so <laughs> I'm- and then uh, I have a Facebook page uh, that that I put announcements on. And finally, if anyone wants to ask me a direct question, they can email me at uh, ask.hwansan at gmail.com. And that's how we found uh, So if anyone wants to address <laughs> me directly, yeah. And actually, I think you can actually probably message me on my Facebook page as well. I think a lot of people have done that as well. So if anyone... That was yeah, actually my first contact right with you, was
0: finding you on Facebook. <laughs> I, I believe. I believe that's how I reached out uh, to you first. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you're right.
3: Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. That's right. But, mm-hmm. Well, I am glad that you guys found me. It's, uh, you know, it's said- this is a very rewarding experience.
0: Yeah, Sunim, I on can't thank sides. you enough for, uh, for doing this with us and, uh, and, and dealing with our emails back and forth and trying to find a time where we could both meet up over this oh, crazy no, time no. difference. <laughs> hey, hey,
1: this world is small. We made it happen. <laughs>
3: <laughs> so. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for, for inviting me on your show. It's an honor, and it, it's really been a pleasure. Oh, to, to honor's on our you end. Guys.
1: Thank you so much, Sunim. Appreciate
3: it. Thank you, too. Thank you, too.
1: Wanstan Sanim is the man. That guy is eloquent, smart, and I was. He promoted this environment where I felt more comfortable asking questions than most guests we have on our show.
0: Oh, yeah. I didn't feel like there was anything that we couldn't ask him about. Yeah. I mean, it's not often that you get somebody with like a scientific background that is also so deep into their religion, and that was just. It was Balanced. an interesting dynamic, and it was a great conversation. I hope you guys think so as well.
1: Yeah, I hope everyone understood. Like this is one of my favorite episodes we've done, um, and yeah, I hope we have more about more types of these more of these types of episodes down the line.
0: Oh, for sure, um, definitely.
1: There's no reason to start looking into other religions and seeing like you know educating people about that and their culture and their history. Absolutely. Um,
0: and if you guys are interested in learning more or checking out more, uh, learning more about meditation, Sun Buddhism in general. Again, type his name in on YouTube, Hwansan Sunim, and there's going to be more than enough info there and videos to keep you entertained.
1: Oh, he has plenty of content. Plenty of content. Uh, I hope you enjoyed this episode. So, um, everyone, thank you. Uh, once again, this episode of The Interesting Hour is brought to you by CORE Foundation. Uh, check us out at cor-foundation.org. And we'll see you next week. See ya! <laughs>